0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galena Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Alex Pentland about his and Alexander Lipton's and Thomas Hajanus' new book, Building the New Economy, Data as capital. How to empower people and communities with user-centric data ownership, transparent and accountable algorithms, and secure digital transaction systems? Data is now central to the economy, government, and health systems. So why are data and the AI systems that interpret the data in the hands of so few people? Building the new economy calls us to reinvent the ways That data and artificial intelligence are used in civic and government systems. Well, Alex, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: It's great to have you here with us today. So, as we have gone through the unprecedented times of the recent global pandemic, I was wondering if you could start by reflecting on how has it affected you and your work, and maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from the experience.
1: Well. You know, being a research unit, um, it didn't actually do very much. We don't have test tubes or anything. We have data and computers, and you can access them from anywhere. So um, in many ways, we were very productive. Um, But like any place that's suddenly distributed, and you don't have that serendipitous interaction, It wasn't something where we could bring new people in, and it wasn't really anything where we could invent new directions and change our thinking. Um, It was mostly, you know, taking care of the things we always wanted to do but never seemed to have time. Uh, So from that point of view, it was good, um, but... uh, I'm glad it ended when it did because it's not clear. Mm. (laughs) We might have run out of things to really pay attention to. Um, On the other hand, of course, uh, from a sort of science point of view, it was an amazing opportunity to see what's called a natural experiment. So people did all sorts of crazy things like shut down the economy, like limit uh, motion, like, you know, on and on. And, um, that gives you a chance, if you observe that, to figure out what things are really driving behavior, what are the effects of things. I'll just give you a small example. It turns out that all this working from home stuff, the, the biggest effect of that is all the people who uh, work in restaurants and delivery and uh, cleaning in white collar areas because they were suddenly all thrown out of work. Mm. Uh, and so in city after city that we looked for, the the biggest economic effects were all the white-collar people staying home, and therefore throwing those blue-collar people out of work. Unintended consequence.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. So you, you, you wouldn't, haven't really predicted that, uh, not you, but uh, in general, uh, scientists.
1: No, well, people didn't expect that, because uh, mm-hmm. it's a second-order effect, and they were looking at uh, that and of course now we're living through a number of the things that are uh, second-order effects. Like it's it's very predictable that if you separate people and limit social interaction, you're going to get a lot more mental health problems. And there we are, right on schedule. Yeah. We have a lot more mental health problems. And similarly, if you convince people that it's dangerous to be out, they're not going to go in for medical exams. And guess what? They didn't. And so when now people are being diagnosed with cancer and so forth, that's much more advanced than they would have otherwise.
0: And you yourself, did you adjust some of your habits, perhaps traveling? Oh. And would you would you keep uh, your habits uh, further?
1: Well, of course, right? I used to travel a great deal and I hardly travel at all now and um, and some of that's good. We're back and, and, and open, so all the undergraduates are at the university, um, and the graduate students are in town, but we don't get together the way we used to. Uh, so it, it's an interesting mix. Um, I don't know that uh, it's sustainable the way it is. I think that we need to either uh, go fully virtual, which won't be a good result or be much more physical, which is going to take a little while.
0: So can you tell us a bit more about yourself?
1: Mm. So I'm a professor at MIT. Um, I was one of the people who came in first to help create the Media Lab, which many people have heard about. I was a, a, a sort of a key person in helping set up uh, research Programs within the new MIT's new College of Computing. Um, you know, I ran discussions about privacy at Davos uh, 14 years ago, and that actually kicked off GDPR because uh, my discussion group included Justice Minister of the EU and people like that. Uh, I helped uh, set up the UN Sustainable Development Goals. I was part of what the UN Secretary General called the data revolutionaries, Mm -hmm. which is thinking about how data can inform and measure progress on the sustainable development goals. And we've had uh, a real emphasis on starting uh, essentially social companies in various ways uh, out of my group. And those social companies now handle things like one-tenth of all the births in the world and literally billions of people every day. So we've had some some effects in the in the real world too.
0: And were you always fascinated with big data or how did you come about to really liking this?
1: Well, I've always been fascinated with human society and understanding that it was really what I wanted to do when I first went to college, but discovered that the only sort of evidence that was available was little laboratory experiments, and it wasn't very predictive. Um, And so that was a little disappointing. But then my first job was counting beavers from outer space. Uh, Wow. (laughs) So how do you do that? Well, it turns out beavers make ponds, and you can see ponds from outer space. So if you count the number of ponds, you get an idea of the number of beavers. And, and that was big data, right? Like, how many beavers are there in the country of Canada uh, is a big data question. And so that sort of started me on the, uh, uh, the path. So it was things like how many beavers, how is the wheat growing in Russia, uh, so on and so forth. And we've really just sort of carried that on in, in various other ways.
0: And what roles did um, your mentors and uh, colleagues as well play along your career journey? And maybe you have uh, some advice to our younger listeners and early career researchers.
1: Well, the real reason to be in research is to have impact. And impact can come not just through papers and and citations, but also through things that happen in the real world. That's what you really care about. Um, And to have that sort of impact, you can't do what everybody else does. You have to sort of put your thumb up in the air and say, which way is the wind blowing? And then try to get ahead of other people, which means that um, what you're doing is not going to be very popular at the beginning. People are going to say, why are you doing that? Can that really work? But uh, if it turns out that you're right, you will have helped define an entire area of science and uh, application.
0: So your latest book is Building the New Economy. And can you give Mm us a glimpse into what it's about and how did you come to writing it?
1: I'll handle the writing first. This is that there was this thing called a pandemic, and we were all at mm. home. And we had to do something, so I wrote a book. <laughs> um, the here's the thing that motivated though. Um, for years, we've been thinking about privacy and and the way the internet is uh, set up, and and all the sort of unhealthy things about that, and. Um, Things like GDPR, the original discussions I had, envision rights for people, um, but it's very difficult for individuals to handle the complexity of data and data rights and follow up, and individuals don't have a lot of power, and then people have tried to make general rules about data and AI, but those are very hard to do precisely and correctly and not throw out, for instance, things that will help uh, medicine with things that help only advertising. So um, it's a conundrum. And I think that the realization came to me that um, what's happened is something a little more profound than what most people think. It's not just that there's data now. Data is really a primary means of production, like money, money or like labor, or like land. And uh, it is going to occupy a serious position in our societies, in our cultures, to help us govern better, to help us be productive, to help us be safe. And as a serious means of production, of course it needs the institutions that are typical of that. So for instance, for money, we have all sorts of regulations about how uh, money has to be audited and what's fair and what's not fair. And the same is true of labor. But those institutions didn't happen just out of some uh, regulator's mind. They happened because groups of people banded together and pushed for change. So in the case of labor, uh, this was the birth of labor unions. And Labor unions came about when uh, workers were being unfairly treated by a few big companies, which sounds sort of familiar today. A few big companies, unfair. Uh, And they bound together and uh, collectively pushed for change. And what they did is, in individual places, they pushed individual companies to change and and that happened again and again and eventually the regulators caught on that this was something that they ought to do. Uh, But those early experiences uh, highlighted what was important to do and what wasn't. So what was important in labor was safety, limited hours, reasonable pay, uh, some security, things like that. And those are the laws that were put in place. Most people don't remember that the same thing happened in banking. So around the beginning of the 1800s, there were only a few big banks. Um, and They were typically commercial. They weren't something that the average person interacted with at all. Uh, and then, at least in the United States, in the sort of late 1800s, 1870s, um, farmer groups, agricultural groups, uh, realized that they were being exploited by the big banks And it was unfair. So they uh, came together and formed their own banks, agricultural banks, cooperative banks, credit unions. And those uh, pushed back in a business sense enough on the big banks that they were able to also pass regulation. It was a a national issue, all sorts of uh, uh, debate about it. But it was, again, these groups of people banding together locally to be able to push things. And so it became fairly clear to me that the same sort of thing happened to happen, had to happen with data and AI. So an individual can do very little. Uniform regulations inevitably leave marginalized communities out of the equation because they're, you know, if you have one rule for everybody, then it's one size fits none. Uh, so what will happen well like you have credit unions you'll probably have data unions and that's what we're working on how do communities take control of their data to be able to establish uh, the rules that they want to protect their rights and to take advantage of data and you may say well that sounds very quixotic but actually Both GDPR and the American law has within it the ability to do this already. We don't need new laws. What we need to do is establish practice, uh, uh, case law in some cases, clue in the regulators. But uh, it's actually fairly easily, both from a legal point of view and from a technical computer science point of view, to create data cooperatives that represent a group of people and ideally are owned by those people. just like with a credit union. The credit union doesn't own your money. Um, a, A data union wouldn't own your data. It just helps you apply your data. And in that way, you can maintain your anonymity and still deal with Facebook. Facebook basically just doesn't know that it's dealing with your representative and not with you. And uh, you can, uh, you know, obscure your data in various ways. You can use it only in certain places. Um, And so you can push back, just like uh, labor unions did, just like credit unions did. But the most important thing uh, is not the money. So everybody talks about, oh, they make money off my data. Well, sure, but it's not that much money. It's really just a couple hundred dollars a person, same that we used to spend on Uh, Print advertising in newspapers. What's really important is um, that people don't know about data in their neighborhood that has to do with health. So, for instance, you do not know if your local hospital is a good hospital and doing its job or whether it's not. You don't know if they charge reasonable amounts or if they're out of line. What could be more important than the health of you and your family? That's not about money it's about knowing the situation that you're in and your neighbor is in relative to everybody else and asking if you're getting the service that you're supposed to get if you have if your rights are being protected the same thing is true of governments you don't really know where the government money goes you don't know which neighborhoods get it which don't what they you know do with it they don't know which people and and that Keeping people ignorant is really the fundamental problem with data. If you can't know what's happening to you and your neighborhood, you can't push for reform. So our institutions have evolved essentially to uh, keep us ignorant, to not have us be in possession of the data without extreme amounts of work. Uh, And as a consequence, we're very compliant, easy to push around, they can do whatever they want. So not that I'm unconcerned about commercial things, but I'm more concerned about, for instance, health care. Uh, in the pandemic, we saw that some neighborhoods uh, were devastated much more than other neighborhoods, and that seems to be mostly a matter of public health, how well that neighborhood was served by the medical system before the pandemic nobody knew because the data is all closely held by the medical institutions. Same thing is true of transportation. Some neighborhoods are served well, others are not, but you don't really know because that's closely held by the city and the transportation companies. Uh, I would like to know that stuff long before I want the, the amount of money that you know is spent on online adver- advertising. And I would like to be able to help govern myself better. And that's what the book is about. Sorry for going on for a long time here, but it's about communities taking control of their data, which is a principal form of production, like money, like labor, and uh, getting their due, being able to get the medical services, being able to get the financial services, being able to get the governance, the transportation, the education, the news. Information that uh, they should be getting and today aren't. And so that's the theme of the book. And it shows examples of this happening in places around the world, talks about the sorts of changes to the system, both computery and uh, organizationally, that need to happen to make this a reality.
0: And in many, in in quite a bit of a sense, it's a change in uh, perspective as well so you flip your expectations of who is the consumer and who is the owner and uh, all this um, uh, that's right in in that sense so to change something of course we need to understand what's going on so can you give us a glimpse into the landscape of current data distribution and who owns it who manages it well
1: you know First of all, you need to remember that data is a, is a, this sort of rich data is a new phenomenon. So it's not surprising that our institutions are not set up to deal with it. So it's not that these people are all evil; it's just they're running on last century's rules. Um, but currently, what you see, for instance, in healthcare is is they use privacy regulation to hide behind and have proprietary advantage. So. The reason if you ask them, well, what's the healthcare service in my area, they'll say, Oh, we can't tell you that. Well, that's idiocy. You ought to be able to know that. And and when you talk about healthcare, for instance, in a neighborhood, that's not data about any particular person. So it's not a matter of privacy. It's a matter of they want to make money off of you. And that's why they're not going to tell you. They want to give you whatever service they want, and you won't know any better. So there you are. So that's why they don't want to give it to you. Uh, same thing with the city. The city doesn't want you to know about how the services are in your neighborhood because that would cause political unrest and they might have to do something. Uh, uh, so we are kept uh, very, very uh, ignorant of this. Now, the, the reason this has come about this way is sort of interesting Uh In the 1980s, because a lot of this dates to the 1980s, so the lack of trust that happened in neighborhoods, the disempowerment neighborhoods, the neighborhood banks disappeared, neighborhood newspapers disappeared, uh, neighborhood hospitals disappeared. So about that time, people began putting in computer systems for centralized management. So these were really the first generation of AI and data. And they made it cheaper to manage things from the center than have local institutions. So as a consequence, all the big central institutions got much more powerful and the neighborhood institutions began to disappear. And, you know, the stock market valuations all reinforced that. The big ones got bigger. They became more price effective. So they took over even more. And so, for instance, in the United States, you only have – you know, a few big banks that handle almost all of the banking, whereas you used to have lots of local institutions that could customize their service to the neighborhood. Who knew you personally where you had trust? You could talk to people. You no longer have that. Same thing with hospitals. Now, the hospitals are all these big centralized things that view you and me as just being numbers, whereas it used to be, that you would have local institutions that actually knew you and a general practitioner that knew who you were, maybe knew your family. uh, And all that personalized interaction, all that local knowledge has disappeared because of this centralization. So the interesting thing is, is that that argument about centralization being cheaper has changed in the last couple of years. You now see distributed systems being deployed for real um, that are just as good and, in fact, cheaper than the centralized systems. So what's an example? An example is the way Google updates phones and does AI on your phones for understanding, you know, and predicting typing or serving ads. It doesn't take data off your phone. It does the computation right there. And the only thing that goes back to, uh, you know, their headquarters are a couple of parameters that don't really say what you've been looking at and what you've been typing. So so if Google can do this without people being much aware of it and update billions of phones using these things and thereby saving computation on their servers and communications, we can do the same things in many other places. And my group has been involved in this in many ways. So, for instance, we recently set up uh, a system uh, called Acoya.com, this is with Fidelity Investments, which lets people move money between banks without sharing their personal data. So it used to be that you had the banks, whenever they moved money, would share all this data about you too, which is a huge security risk, huge invasion of privacy. It's legal, but wrong. And we set up something where now banks can attest to each other. They can you know, vouch that yes, this customer meets these needs. They're not criminals. They're they really do live here, that sort of thing. But without sharing any more data about you, so this data minimization on a big time. That's called distributed computing, distributed uh, uh, machine learning, distributed AI, where it happens on the edges, not in the center. And what that's doing is it's making it now cost effective to have local banks, local newspapers, local, local hospitals, once again. And uh, so we work with a whole variety of entities, uh, networks and associations of these to be able to use this new capability to do distributed things cheaply uh, to be able to revitalize community institutions.
0: So what other technologies could enable uh data being viewed as a capital?
1: Well, the core things are are already there, right? So we have fiber in in places like the EU and, and the US. Most places have good communications. The pandemic showed that you could do Zoom. You could do things like this recording without uh, regard to distance um, for most people, not for everybody, but for most people, it's, 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 an amazing achievement which needs to be extended further. So that's one thing. We now have supercomputers in our pockets, so we have computation everywhere. Um, So those are two of the things. The advent of uh, distributed AI, distributed machine learning, distributed systems uh, was originally for uh, cost savings, but also for privacy protection because you don't want to be passing data around and sharing data. If you minimize that, then you're in a better, safer situation. So these things have been developed. They're being deployed. um, And we're sort of in a phase now of realizing that the the tide has turned, and we can take advantage of these to to revitalize uh, communities. But to do that also requires that the people in the communities be literate about data, that they understand the potential that they have, the opportunity that they have. So they have to know a little bit about how to handle data. They have to know how to uh, assess trends. They have to know how to use these new tools. And unfortunately, most of the schools don't teach any of that. Um, And so data literacy, uh, sort of computer savvy, becomes increasingly important there. Now, it's not that everybody needs to know this, but every community needs to have a, a good couple of handfuls of people that do know it and are able to pitch in and help out to set up the new newspaper, to set up the new uh, financial institution or cooperative, uh, and so forth.
0: Oh, this is such a crucial point. Uh, the uh, because economy itself, it would require uh, quite a bit of uh, social engineering, perhaps, perhaps even And that's the main thing that people are interested in it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and the thing that is um, sort of funny, like I just got done teaching a course, is that there's so much hype around AI and how complicated it is and all that. But actually, it's quite simple. (laughs) It's Mm. just not that complicated. For instance, we ran a course in Canada for the government of Canada, where we taught plumbers and construction workers and folks like that, dentists, how to use data and AI. And these are not people with college degrees by and large. They're not people that you would think of as being AI uh, users. But some 15% of them ended up starting new lines of business in their plumbing business or their construction business using the sort of data that they already had and their understanding of some of these tools. It's not that complicated. It's just, you know, needs to be dismissed, <laughs> demystified. And people need to know that they too have the mental capacity to understand and use this stuff.
0: What you mentioned earlier about data cooperatives, like the whole concept is just so fascinating, but I was wondering, does it apply to all sectors? So you gave examples of healthcare, for example, can we think about data cooperatives uh, for environmental um, disasters or uh, something like this?
1: Well, you know, the the model or the analogy might be, um, uh, credit unions, okay, so these are financial cooperatives, and uh, they handle money for all the different things you do, for paying medical bills, for investing in your house, for everything, right? Um, And by analogy, perhaps a data cooperative would help you handle data uh, for your healthcare, for your job, for... Uh, the local government for whatever, uh, just the way that the credit union would help you with your payments and and income. And the the advantage of having a a collective entity like that, something that help you out, is that it's complicated. Uh, I mean, I study this stuff. I've been involved in lots of aspects of it. And I don't know how to do stuff like that. If the trade-offs require knowing the details. And so you need somebody who can represent you. You shouldn't be trying to do it yourself. And that sounds like a cooperative to me.
0: So you already gave an, an example of minimalistic use of data for transfer of funds between banks. Can you give us some um, other, your favorite examples of uh, systems that have been applied and have been successful?
1: Well, um, we have a number of uh, spin-offs that have come out of, of my group. You know, one um, deals with medical information. So the medical industry is very siloed. Nobody wants to share anything. And they pretend like that's all about privacy, but um, really it's for proprietary advantage, I think. And so what we did is we set up something that allowed, uh, you know, the x-ray guy and the pharmacist and your doctor and the surgeon to all share information, but without sharing data. So they could ask questions like, you know, should you be getting this treatment versus that treatment without letting go of the data that they hold about you? And this is, this is, in some sense, all an artificial thing because the way that the industry grew up was very, very siloed. So the, the, the radiation people, the x-ray people don't talk to the pharmacy people, mm. don't talk to the doctor, etc., etc. et cetera. Et cetera. Um, so, so that's enormously important for giving people holistic care while not spreading their data around. That's an example. Another thing that we do a lot of is we do things around government. Um, it turns out that, you know, when they set up a new transportation system or a bus line or, or something like that, they actually know very little about who's going to use it. Is it good? Are these rich people, poor people, etc.? And now that we have these sort of rich data sources, we can look at, uh, how to best set up public infrastructure to serve vulnerable people, to serve poor communities, um, not only for uh, transportation time, but for social impact. And, and to do that, you need to know relatively little. But I'll, I'll give you an example. If each neighborhood knew things like, where do, what other places do most people work? where do people shop? Where do they go to play? It's not information about individuals. That's aggregate information. It's about flows of people. If the neighborhoods had data like that, which you could get from questionnaires, you can get it from car traffic. There's many places to get it. Um, then you could design bus systems, for instance, that help people get to work or get to mm-hmm. shop to, uh, uh, places that were cheaper or better for them or, uh, Hook them more into the entertainment available in the area or, or food that was better in the area. Um, but currently, nobody keeps track of that data and they don't use it.
0: So these sound really interesting, uh, uh, really interesting applications. But if we think about the other side of it, so are there any unsuccessful attempts to use data and what kind of shortcomings can there
1: be? Well, there's lots of unsuccessful attempts and most of them involve some business trying to own your data. I said, oh, give me your data and we'll do things for you. Well, no, thank you. I'm not going to give you my data. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so they try that proposition and it doesn't work. right? Um, and... You know, so those are typically the unsuccessful things, and until just recently, the last several years, it hasn't been really cost effective uh, to be able to have lots of distributed local holding of data, you know, like a local cooperative. Um, and so it hasn't really been tried that much. We're, we work with several cooperatives to, you know, help uh, with optimizing the transportation system, getting better uh, health care, and, and things like that. And, you know, at this point, it's, it's, it's early days, I have to say, right? Um, but there are places like, for instance, the UK that are extremely interested because their government has these councils. So part of the government has a local, very hyper-local neighborhood um, uh, representatives that are supposed to manage the government payments and government things in the neighborhood. And they could very easily help optimize the citywide transportation, the citywide healthcare and so on and so forth. But they never have really done that because they weren't data literate and they didn't know that the sort of data that is easy to have, things like you know, where do most people work? Where do most people shop? That those sorts of things were critical for getting their council, their people in their council, better services. But the fact that they already have these, these institutions that are supposed to be helping the citizens and the fact that this data is not very sensitive at all um, means that it would be relatively easy for them to, to make government and, and services work lots better uh, without endangering the privacy of the citizens. So they're fighting through that and thinking through it, but it's an example of a place where they could do that pretty easily.
0: So what are some of the key considerations uh, that you have when you design such systems?
1: Well, I think that you know you need to use, in some sense, the analogy with money. Is like uh, these institutions should not own your data they should uh, represent you the way a, a lawyer or solicitor would or your doctor is supposed to act in your best interest. So they, they hold data for you and they help you do things. And um, that way of doing things means that now suddenly you have a local advocate who sort of knows what they're doing, is supposed to represent you and not their self-interest, uh, legally supposed to do that, and, um, you can begin finding out the things that you need to get better services, better healthcare, better schools, uh, better transportation, and indeed some money also. And, and, you know, people are just beginning to understand that. And, uh, we see that beginning to happen. We work with people in Australia or work with people in, uh, places like uh, some places in Africa and South Asia, Um, and I think Europe and the U.S. are just really waking up to this. Uh, Very uh, nice to see that some of the networks of community uh, financial institutions, so these are small co-ops and banks in uh, poorer neighborhoods, uh, have a network whereby they share information, and they're beginning to set up exactly these sorts of tools so that their neighborhoods can do better.
0: So thinking about the big picture, what would be the implications of uh, this field for solving some global problems, perhaps the ones that you helped uh, to set up?
1: Well, so the implication I see is this, is, is that you know, in the, in the late 1800s, Uh, we saw a couple of big companies monopolizing uh, labor, and that led to labor unions. In the mid-1800s, we saw big banks um, exploiting farming communities and other small communities, and that led to community banks. And so now we see a few big corporations and, indeed, government and medical institutions exploiting the data of people And there needs to be pushback. And just like with labor unions, just like with credit unions, um, that pushback will eventually result in a much better deal for everybody and uh, government and and services and society that works much better. One of the other things that happens, though, is a a really interesting effect. Is like in both Europe and the U.S. and indeed elsewhere, we see a lot of uh, polarization. We see a lot of anger about uh, mistreatment of various sorts. Mm. And a lot of that actually stems from the fact that there's been this enormous centralization over the last 30 years. So this rise of, of anger and the loss of trust is dates back really to about 1980, which is about the same time that services and data began to be centralized. So what is it about centralization that can lead to polarization and loss of trust? Well, it's you centralize a service. You make a uniform rule, then any community that's not part of the majority uh, won't have quite the right services. You know, it's, it's, as they say in the EU, one size fits none. And so, Increasingly, as things have become uniform, the people in small communities have been ignored, maltreated by the fact that there is a uniform service only. People need to have different rules, slightly different rules, in different communities. Each community is different. The policing in my neighborhood is different than the policing in your neighborhood because we have different problems. The health care in my neighborhood is going to be different than the health care in your neighborhood because we have different problems. So if there's just one standard, that means that probably both you and I will be unhappy because we won't be getting the services that we need. So this distributed uh, sort of management and distributed control of data, giving people more control over data, should result in much more personalized community-centric services which should increase trust because now you're getting what you and your buddies and your community really need. And and you're more involved in the process. Centralization means that all the decisions are made far away from you by people you don't know. If it's in the community, you do know the people you can go down there and yell at them if you don't like it. And, and The special uh, conditions of your community can be taken into consideration, which can't happen if the decisions are made by a centralized authority far away. So I think it would go a long way towards solving or ameliorating the problems that we have in society with polarization, loss of trust, and so forth.
0: So is it like renting your data out rather than putting it into, say, centralized uh, data bank? Well, it's,
1: it's again, sort of like a credit union where you put your data in there. It's still your data, right? Mm-hmm. But they help you invest it to get better services. So, for instance, they would take an average across all the people in the neighborhood and say, how many cases of diabetes do we have? If we have lots of diabetes, then we had better insist that the hospitals change the way they treat our neighborhood.
0: So what would be a sort of next first steps uh, that we need to kind of get people on board to start applying some of these concepts?
1: Well, history gives us some examples. So one of the things that we're doing is we're working with uh, teams of lawyers, teams of uh, credit unions, teams of consumer unions to be able to really uh, is clarify the law so that people have not only says in, in the law that you have control over it, but did you actually have control over it operationally? Uh, so that's a first step, and that's that's moving ahead. And then um, the second thing is you need to find some use cases that are simple, non-threatening, everybody can understand them, but very valuable. So um, I think, you know, given the pandemic, a, a really interesting case would be, well, what happened during the pandemic in our neighborhood? And how much is this seeming to be due to poor uh, uh, public health, to diabetes, to, to uh, high blood pressure, and what can we do about that so that this doesn't happen again? It's a sort of obvious thing. It's not about uh, individuals. It's about the statistics in your neighborhood and whether you have clinics in your neighborhood that are focusing on that problem or whether they're focusing on the average problem in, in your country. So that would be an example. Another example would be um, to be able to ask, where do people work in my neighborhood? Where do they play? Where do they go to school? And then be able to compare those answers to what the the transportation system offers. I mean, is the transportation system set up to help you shop where you want to get to your work for your kids to get to school in a safe way? Odds are it's not because... The transportation systems, in general, are not set up taking into account the um, needs of the community. They're set up to make the existing transportation patterns a little more efficient. So they're taking the people that already have an advantage, can already use the system, and trying to make it a little better for them. But they're not trying to help the people who don't feel that they can use the system. Uh, and what we've been able to show is that that sort of uh, just optimizing the current system rather than designing for the social need results in higher unemployment. It results in uh, food deserts in various ways. It results in uh, increased poverty. And so it's, it's a very bad thing that we're not using the needs of the community to design services like transportation.
0: So what discoveries along your journey to writing your book, Building the New Economy, surprised you the most?
1: Well, um, let me think about that. That's a good one. Oh, well, the one that was most interesting um, was this whole emerging area of There's a lot of different ways to describe it, but people talk about non-fungible tokens. Is that too technical for this?
0: No, no, it's good. NFTs. NFTs,
1: yeah. So um, there's been a lot of hype about this, selling art using these digital tokens, uh, Bitcoin, things like that are digital tokens. Um, And what I've seen is I've seen several countries, nations set up systems To do this sort of thing, so China famously has one. So does Singapore. We help Switzerland set up one. It's called the Swiss Trust Chain. Look it up, and uh, it handles things like NFTs and allows movement of data in a much safer way than uh, is currently has previously been possible. And. It's the realization that what's happening with these systems is that we're seeing the next generation of the Internet. So the Internet started off as a way of moving you know, messages around in a very robust way, and then they added the web interface to it, so the World Wide Web, which was a protocol for doing this which made it uniform everywhere and really made it take off. Uh, but it's actually a terrible interface for business, for lots of other sort of government services, for healthcare, care, because it, it, the identities are not secure, the transmission is not secure, there's no necessary acknowledgement of things, so you can offer something, but you don't know if the person uh, accepted it, and it wouldn't be legally enforceable anyhow. But now you're seeing these new systems as a layer, transaction layer, on top of the World Wide Web. What that means is you can now buy, sell things, move data in a legally traceable and enforceable fashion. And that makes all sorts of things possible that today are a little dicey at best. And so in the book, I give an example, one of my friends did, of raising roughly a billion dollars. To build a hydroelectric plant and what they did is they sold nfts to people in a a mountainous valley and the nfts can be changed in for electricity so it's a a nft for 16 years of electricity say and you buy it now at a discount and then you get your electricity for the next 16 years for free as you turn Mm -hmm. in your nfts and they, raised, they sold these, they raised the money, they built the hydroelectric plant, and uh, it's owned by the community. It's not owned by one rich guy or owned by the government. Uh, they did it by a sort of a crowdfunding via these transaction platforms and what's really the equivalent of NFTs. Uh, similarly, we're working with um, the Recording Academy, uh, which is the Grammy Awards. Uh, because musicians don't get credit for their music. So you know, music is something that should certainly be sold using NFTs, right? Yeah. should be licensed, sold, used so that the musicians can get paid, so that it becomes a healthy economy. But there's no transaction systems that support all of that today. And so we're talking with them about actually setting up such a system so that the ecology of music... Uh, as a business, can be much healthier than it is today. And we've already set up an a initial one with the largest music school in, in the world, largest popular music school in the world, and uh, it's been quite successful. So we're hopeful that we could see uh, the, the music industry become much more interesting than it is today.
0: And as a data expert, does it bother you when you hear people using data is instead of data are?
1: You know, English can change over time. Uh, It doesn't irritate me, but then I'm not very sensitive to things like (laughs) that anyhow.
0: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project?
1: Well, a lot of what we're doing now is um, around this, you know, enabling cooperatives to take help people with their data and help people with AI to improve communities. And I mentioned the uh, project with uh, uh, helping musicians to take control of their data, which is their music. Um, And we're also looking at um, launching uh, social. social network, social media network platform uh, that optimizes uh, social capital instead of monetary capital. So the core problem with Facebook and TikTok and all these is that they're set up to make money and that's the only thing they really optimize. Uh, And of course it has all these bad social effects as a consequence. But what would happen if you could have something that was similar but was set up to optimize social consequences rather than just money? And the bet is that while that wouldn't scale quite as virally, uh, in the long run, people would enjoy it more because it made their life better and they could see that. Uh, So uh, it's like, you know, you can eat cheap food. It's actually much more enjoyable to eat really good food. (laughs) And, uh, that's the bet is, is that if we can make social media, that is, feels good in your life, that people will become addicted to that and it will help their communities. And when I say optimizes social capital, what I mean is it optimizes, uh, person to person, human interaction, optimizes trust, uh, minimizes disinformation. And we think we know we can how to do that, because we've done enough experiments in this space that it seems that it's, it's pretty plausible. Uh, and so we're thinking about launching something like that.
0: Oh, these sound really exciting projects. So where can our listeners find more information about your work and also your book?
1: Well, the book is at um, MIT Press. But it's also on Amazon and places like that. And it's called "Building the New Economy," uh, colon Data as Capital, and Pentland is the. There's three of us that wrote it together. Three people in my uh, team here, uh, but I'm the first author, so it's uh, Pentland. Um, and then uh, our web pages are at uh, connection.mit.edu, and uh, that's maybe sort of a general pointer. I don't know that everybody will want to see that, but you can certainly see a lot of what's happening there. And uh, there's a lot of other little websites off of that. And I think that may be um, the main sort of resources to point to.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today and for this illuminating discussion.
1: My pleasure. My pleasure. Look forward to uh, meeting people because of this.